Welcome, my friends, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I am the Tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Hello again, Tomb Believers. Last time, we had breakfast with werewolves. This time, we're doing brunch with vampires. Yeah! We all know what vampires like for brunch. A nice juicy steak? Actually, it's a Jewish delicatessen. You'd be surprised. Oh, that... I could see that. Yeah. Um, they actually prefer you stay away from, like, the steaks and the garlic. Oh. But... I, I, that makes sense. That makes sense. Dracula likes the pastrami on rye. Mm. Mm, yeah. Um, in any case, I'm Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. And this is Tomb of Ideas, where we talk about all things Marvel and monstrous, going issue by issue through the horror and monster comics of the 1970s and beyond. Yep. And we should probably start that off by doing a deep dive into the latest happenings in Marvel media. Which, of course, means it's time for... Hellstrom Watch! Yeah, we've got some new goings-on in the MCU. Uh, starting with some news about Spider-Man 3. Or, I, I keep calling it Spider-Man 3, but I feel like that gets weird because there's already a Spider-Man 3 that's existed for, what, 10-plus years now? Yeah. So, so what do we... Far From... Or, or Homecoming 3? I don't know. As far as we know, the one without disco dancing. Right, right. Although you never know. I would not be mad if Tobey Maguire comes disco dancing into his cameo in this movie. I mean, do we know for sure he's getting a cameo? Not officially, no. They're, they're not saying. But he's been seen around where they've been filming... Uh, I think Garfield has been seen around where they've been filming. Heck, Charlie Cox has apparently been seen in and around where they've been filming. So, who knows? Um, however, one person we know is definitely not in the movie. Uh, Dane DeHaan, who played Harry Osborn in the Amazing Spider-Man movies, uh, has gone on the record saying he is definitely not reprising the role, despite rumors to the contrary. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I mean, no offense to him. He's, I'm sure he's a good actor. Um, the only he was other... fine. He was fine as Harry. I just thought that was a terrible version of the Goblin. So bad. It's like, oh, you put face paint on him and boom, he's the Green Goblin now? Right, right. That's what it was. It, it was fucking face paint. Yeah, yeah. Like. And, and, and maybe they put, I think he had like some fake teeth or something in, but I think he had like pointy teeth. But Ridiculous. I just, I but, don't. It is crazy that nobody has... We have had so many Spider-Man movies, and nobody has ever done a Green Goblin that actually got it right. No. And they have that freaking Green Goblin prosthetic. Yeah. Guys, if you've never found this before or seen it, search for unused Green Goblin animatronic mask. Um, it, It was designed for the original Sam Raimi movie in, what, 2003? Yeah? No. 2002. Yeah. 2000, 2002. Uh, it was what they were originally going to use instead of the Power Ranger armor, and it was comics accurate. It was perfect. It was so good. Yeah. 
Uh, and and what's what breaks my heart is Willem Dafoe was perfectly cast as Norman Osborn. Mm-hmm. He was great. Yeah. The goblin glider looked great. I just did not like the armor that he wore. No, it was terrible. And even if you look at the concept art for that movie, they, they commissioned Alex Ross to design looks for the characters for that movie. And uh, he did a, a drawing of a more... Com- like basically splitting the difference between what we ended up with and what the comics version was. And it looked so good. I've never seen the Alex Ross Green Goblin. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, um, It's... Because it, what it looks like is that... Because if you remember, Osborne has those purple curtains in his, like, condo. Oh, yeah. What it looks like, what it looks like is that he ripped the curtains off the wall and fashioned a cape out of them. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I have seen this. You're right. Yeah. That, that's but good. He ha- but he had the more, like, lizardy-looking appearance, like, more like the comics instead of the, the armor. And he had that sword. I love yep. that sword. Which was also in the movie. Like, it's there. Like, you can see it in the background of the movie. But, yeah. Yeah, missed opportunity. They've, they've never gotten the Green Goblin right, ever. Um, maybe someday. Although it seems like the trend these days is to do Ultimate Green Goblin instead, and I never liked that design. No. Like, that's the one that appeared in Spider-Verse. Right. That's the, he's, he's a literal, like, big goblin creature with wings or whatever. Yes, which, eh. Because you all... Because he, he was introduced as, like, this scheming character, and the whole thing was like, who's behind the mask? Yep, yeah. Or even when he would come back later, it was always a reveal that he was the mastermind behind everything. Yeah. So, anyway. So, Dane DeHaan, as far as we know, according to him, definitely not coming back. Uh, also, there are some set photos from the production revealing a truck with the logo for Feast, um, which could suggest Martin Lee, a.k.a. Mr. Negative. Oh, wow. Or or it could just be an Easter egg for fans of the PlayStation games. True, true. But, I mean, come on. I think everybody would love to see Tom Holland's Spider-Man fight a good Green Goblin. Yes, yes. I, I, so, or, at the very least, a Hobgoblin. Like, somebody that's a comics-accurate reflection of one of the goblins. Yes. Because Holland is just so damn good as Peter Parker. Because I wouldn't be mad about Hobgoblin, you know? Like, that's a that's a fun villain who hits a lot of the same... Like, he presses a lot of the same buttons as far as, like, interactions with Spider-Man. He's not quite the schemer that Green Goblin is. Well, I remember the, the speculation after, for the third Raimi film, or, like, the, the Raimi sequels, was that... James Franco was going to come back as Hobgoblin. Right, and instead they did that, like, wishy-washy Goblin 2 kind of thing where he had the the flying snowboard. Oh, I forgot about that shit. Well, because everyone forgets about him because everyone remembers Venom and Sandman. Because what they did... There was a they did They did the Harry Osborn Green Goblin, but they made him the Phil Urich Green Goblin where he turns good. Mm-hmm. You know, because remember that that third act fight, the goblin teams up with Spider-Man against Sandman and Venom. So, so anyway, uh, so Feast at least has a, a cameo appearance in, in the movie. And also Zendaya gave an interview recently where she talked about filming still being ongoing and was quoted as saying that what they're filming is like running from aliens and stuff. 
Um, it's not clear if she meant that literally or if she was just sort of referring to the process of filming with green screen and mocap where like the process of filming is reacting to things that aren't really really there because mm-hmm. so I've heard other actors before like talk of like use sort of the, the running from like something like running from aliens as a shorthand for green screen and mocap work yeah so not clear if she meant that literally there would be aliens in the Spider-Man movie or if that's what was going on but but that's pretty much it. It's just uh, still ongoing. Lots of effects work to be done. No Dane DeHaan, but feast. Yep. So big mystery on Spider-Man Homecoming or Home. The third film in the Spider-Man yeah. Home trilogy. Homesick? Oh. Uh, Spider-Man House Arrest? <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, Simu Liu, uh, the star of Shang-Chi, is... Uh, he says that people may be surprised by how small and intimate that movie is. Really? Which is interesting. Yeah, it is. I wonder if that's because of COVID. Possibly. Or or maybe it's just more character-driven, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like, maybe they really are making, like, a Marvel Kung Fu movie. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. But all we really know about that one, because they, they have kept things quiet on that production surprisingly well. All we really know about it is that it it will involve the real Mandarin. Yeah. Because it's it's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Yes, and they're replacing the Fu Manchu with the Mandarin. That's right. Yeah. And and tying it into some version of the Ten Rings organization that existed in Iron Man. Yes, which makes sense. Yes. Okay. Uh, because if 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 you've never watched it, uh back when the MCU was sort of starting out, Sort of the around phase two, I guess you'd say. Uh, they did these Marvel one shots yep. that were like short films that went in between the movies. One of the short films was what happens to Trevor, the actor who played the Mandarin in Iron Man three, the fake Mandarin. Yep. What happens to him in prison? Yes, and it's it's honestly one of the more fun one shots. Partly because Ben Kingsley is fun. Partly because you get a cameo appearance of Justin Hammer, who is also in the prison. Yes. Uh, but also because it reveals that while this guy was not the real Mandarin, there is a real Mandarin, and he runs the real Ten Rings organization, and he was not happy about the the sort of stealing of his iconography. <laughs> so. I mean, no. I, so, yeah. So it's a fun one shot, and and and... It's nice that they're finally paying off some of that. Yes. Which is... it. It's nice that the universe is tying together. Yes. As the MCU does so well, so often. So very well. Um, also, Black Widow is still aiming for theaters, despite having been delayed yet again. <sighs> is it still October now? Uh, I don't know. I, I think that was the last I saw. I, I can't remember if they, they landed on May or October, but they pushed it back. But right now, insiders say there's no plan for it to go direct to Disney Plus. Why not? I just guess because there's a us. vaccine now. Just, just give it to us. So right now it's May seventh, two thousand twenty-one. That, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to go to a movie theater by that date. But <laughs> at the pace teachers are getting vaccines, I won't either. Right. Um. Let's see, we've got some Thor Love and Thunder updates. Uh, 
so we know that the Guardians are, are appearing in some capacity in the movie because that's where we last left Thor was with the Guardians. Okay. Uh, James Gunn has been consulting on how the Guardians are being used in the film. Well, that's good because they're his babies. Yeah, presumably to make sure that it doesn't contradict anything he has planned for Volume 3. That's good, too. Uh, which is interesting because that puts James Gunn in the position of working on a DC project while consulting on a Marvel project. Because <laughs> uh, he's in the middle of filming for his uh, Peacemaker TV series that's spinning off of the Suicide Squad. The cartoon one, right? Uh, I think it's live action. What? Like John Cena as the Peacemaker. I think it's a live action series. I could be wrong. Hold on. <laughs> I thought it was animated. No, it's live action. Because they already made the suit for the movie. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Now, the marketing for it all was sort of cartoony. It looked like like Peacemaker from the old Ostrander comics. Mm-hmm. But but it's live action as far as I know. Yep. But, but it, I just think it's funny that James Gunn is in the process of filming that while consulting on Thor Love and Thunder. That is amusing. Um, also, uh, speaking of the Guardians, Volume 3 is expected to start filming later this year in the UK. Uh, assuming the UK is able to get out of this like, third lockdown. Right, right. Um, and also with Thor Love and Thunder, uh, useful just to sort of run down, these are the people and characters that we know are definitely in the movie at this point as of this week. Um, of course, Chris Hemsworth as Thor. Oh, okay. Tessa, cool. <laughs> Tessa Thompson is back as Valkyrie. Excellent. Natalie Portman is back as Jane Foster slash other Thor. What? Um, Christian Bale is Gore the God Butcher. Good lord. Okay. Uh, Chris Pratt is Peter Quill, the Star-Lord. Yeah. Uh, Jamie Alexander is Lady Sif. Uh, nice that she's coming back. It really is, uh, because she has not played that part since... Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. You're, wow, you're right. It's, because she had to skip the last Thor movie. Because she's working on Blindspot, which right. is, is still a show. Yeah. So apparently they're making room in her schedule. Yeah, and and uh, and she also missed... Uh, because she wasn't in Ragnarok, it didn't make sense for her to be in Infinity War. Yeah. Because everyone on that ship in Infinity War were the people who were in the end of Ragnarok. Yeah. So I guess they could probably explain it away as she was off on an adventure in one of the other realms when everything went down. Yeah. It kind of sucks for her that she missed out on, um, you know, Endgame. It does. It really does. But it's probably for the best that she missed out on Ragnarok because I have a feeling they would have killed her off along with the Warriors 3. Probably, yes. So maybe to her advantage to skip out on that one. Uh, so Lady Sif, uh, Karen Gillan is back as Nebula. Uh, Palm Clementif is back as Mantis. Oh, good. And and Dave Bautista is back as Drax. Very good. So, uh, so ev- evidently this will be uh, uh, right after Endgame because that is very much the crew of uh, th- that's the Guardians team that existed right at the end of that movie. Yes. Um, also, Taika Waititi is back as Korg. <laughs> Uh, Matt Damon is back as the actor who played Loki, question mark. Are we sure he's playing the same actor? We do not know. However, uh, Sam Neill gave an interview after I put together this list saying he expects to be asked back for Thor Love and Thunder. 
And Sam Neill played the actor who played Odin. Yes. God damn. <laughs> How did they not die? How? How did they not die? <laughs> the Warriors 3 died and they did not. Yeah. The local <laughs> acting troupe. <laughs> Fucking bards. So, so to me, this this supports my point that they were not a local acting troupe, that they were literally humans pulled into Asgard for Loki's amusement. <laughs> Guys, you can't see it, but I'm gobsmacked right now. Like, just like the hubris. So it might just be Matt Damon. And Sam Neill. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but Matt Damon expects to be on the production for maybe a few months. Wait, what? what? That's, that's more than a cameo. Yeah. Now, some of that could be quarantine time. But months? Yeah, you factor in you factor in two to three weeks on each end. Mm, like, what if they're like Gore the God Slayer, whatever his name is, Henchman? That would be great, actually. The, and of course, he's still playing Matt Damon. <laughs> yes, yes. He's still playing Matt Damon playing Loki. Yes. Thor is just going to be like, bring me Matt Damon! <laughs> Uh, and uh, finally, as far as uh, MCU-related stuff, uh, Ryan Reynolds talked a little bit about what the plan was for Deadpool 3 before the Disney buyout. So this would have been the Fox version of Deadpool 3. Okay. The plan, and I presume they had a way of getting the other actor on board with this, the plan was to do a road trip movie with Wolverine. Okay, here's... Mm. I've not actually seen Logan. Logan's good. Logan's I, real good. I, I, I hear that, and I've tried. <laughs> I've tried watching Logan, and all the ways I've tried watching it have not panned out for me. Um, but huh, my understanding is that with the ending of Logan, that that, that road trip was not a possibility. We would have to be set before Logan, because Logan's set in the future. Okay. Yeah. Like the near future, but the future. Mm-hmm. And also, when has Deadpool of all characters? ever cared about continuity. True. At the end of his last movie, he had a fucking time machine. Yes. I mean, when they took him to the X-Mansion, he asked if Stuart or McAvoy was going to be there. You're right. <laughs> oh, God damn it. So, that's not happening, apparently. Right, so that's not what Deadpool 3 is going to be about. We don't know what Disney is going to do with Deadpool, aside from the fact that they've okayed it being R-rated. Yes. And it just occurs to me, is Deadpool 3 how we get introduced to mutants in the MCU? Well, that's a possibility. Or at the very least, he could comment on the weird discrepancy of, like, there being no mutants around, aside from the ones that are in his movie. Yeah. Uh, but one of the one of the other possibilities, and this sort of takes us into something that's Hellstrom Watch adjacent, I guess, is there are people speculating that the fallout of one division could, in, could bring mutants into things. Oh, are we getting into this now? I mean, I, I don't see why not. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, we are, cl we are putting the spoiler warning into effect because we are going to discuss the latest episode, episode four of Wanda WandaVision. We interrupt this program. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. So, uh, I don't know how else to say this, but, uh, WandaVision real good. It's, it's real nice, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's real good. Uh, 
And it's fascinating that we, we finally have an episode that breaks out of the sitcom format. Yes. Um, getting into what I was just saying, uh, sort of taking the long view, not necessarily that this show in particular will introduce mutants, but that this show will put Wanda on a path toward in the MCU. And basically everyone expects her to do a reverse No More Mutants. Mm-hmm. Like, like the, the theory is that she will... Not necessarily House of M everything, but, like, kind of House of M everything. <laughs> that, like, by the end of this, she will create mutants, or open up the multiverse, or... Because we know that Wanda as, is... As a, way, as a way of at least keeping her kids alive. Yes. Because we know that uh, Wanda is going to be appearing in uh, Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. Right. That would be where I would expect it to happen. Yep. And I think I, my thinking is that this show is basically going to John burn her. Maybe not as like, maybe not in a way that's as permanently damaging as what Burn started. Yeah. But but I, I I think I think the trauma of having to relive the loss of Vision, which I think is where we're headed. Yeah. Uh, is is going to put her on a path toward being why it's not just a multiverse, but a multiverse of madness. Uh, poor Wanda. So, okay, we should talk about episode four. Yep. So, episode four brings us out into the real world. Yeah, yeah. And, and and reintroduces us to some familiar faces. Yep, uh, Jimmy Woo and Darcy. Yep. From previous uh, MCU outings. Yep, so, so Jimmy Wu was uh, the federal agent who was assigned to check in on Ant-Man every so often in Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yep, Scott Lang. Uh, yep. Yep, he was his parole officer, basically. And Darcy was the poli-sci major who was interning with astrophysicist Jane Foster <laughs> in Thor. <laughs> And evidently was so taken by the experience of the first two Thor movies that she changed her major and is now an astrophysicist in her own right. Yes. Which makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, you've got experience in that field. I'm sure there's some university who would turn that into credits. (laughs) I can just imagine, like, the doctoral committee, like, pushing back on, on... uh, like granting her degree or whatever, and her just being like, "I'm sorry. How many Asgardians have, from another realm of existence have you met? How many times have you saved the world? Right, right. <laughs> like you know, with with your current, it was her boyfriend. Remember the boyfriend, her, her yeah. intern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. No, Darcy is low key one of the best parts of the MCU. Yes. I have to agree. And and I'm thrilled that she is back and, and is so, like, hyper-competent. So hyper-competent. Like, she's the only one who realizes, hey, there's stuff going on here. Also, can I get my coffee? Right. No, she she will never get her coffee. I don't think she ever got her coffee. She didn't. She didn't. <laughs> I thought she did, but it was a cup of noodles. Yes. Just like... Because I saw her holding a styrofoam cup, and I was like, oh, she got her coffee. And then it was noodles. <laughs> that, she had, that she had clearly microwaved herself. Yes. Because she had, like, oh, so infuriating. Like, she's doing important monitor duties. Like, literal literal monitor duty. Yes, yes. Um, it's fascinating because we, 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 we finally get the context for the ends of the episodes. 
where it zooms out and we have people watching the show. Yes. But what they've been watching is not what we've been seeing. It isn't? So when what they've been watching is being edited for content. Interesting. So, like, for example, um, when Jimmy Woo tries to communicate through the radio, Mm -hmm. in the episode that we watched, we see them react to that. Like, what is that? I don't know. It's upsetting. Like, there was a conversation about it. And then, and then things continued. What they watch has a what they watch has a jump cut. You're right. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. Or or even like the uh, the beekeepers emer- the beekeeper emerging and and Wanda realizing something's not right and rewinding and starting over. They don't see that. They just see the happy end of the episode. The, the jump cut. Yep. Yeah. Which I think is just so smart and clever. Uh, yes. In addition to uh, Jimmy and Darcy, we've got uh, <clears throat> our formal introduction to Monica Rambeau, who we had seen throughout the first few episodes, but yes. under under uh, the name, what, Geraldine? Geraldine, yeah. Geraldine. Um, and so we find out why she was calling herself Geraldine and what was going on. Um, yes. And, and of course, we had met Monica Rambeau before in Captain Marvel, but in that she was uh, a little girl. A small child, yeah. Um, and it turns out that her mom, Maria Rambeau, Captain Marvel's, uh, like, friend and wingwoman, um, was the founder of S.W.O.R.D. in the MCU. Yes. Which is awesome. And she she notes that, she notes that the door no longer says creation. Mm-hmm. Because S.W.O.R.D. here is sentient, sentient weapon observation and response division or something like that. Right. So in the comics, it's close. It's the the comics was sentient world observation and response to, uh, department. Yes. So, so the idea in the comics was they were monitoring alien worlds that might be a threat. Yes. Um, but in this case, it's it's less specific. It's still, I think, it's still related to extraterrestrials. Okay, because they do talk about doing space missions. Right, and 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 Monica is told that she's been grounded for a little while per her mom's instructions about. If people return from the blip, which oh wait, we haven't really talked about this yet. They, yeah, they sh- we, talk, we we actually begin at the end of Endgame. Yes, <laughs> we see people coming back from the blip, and holy fuck, is it traumatic? Yeah, it is. It is the other side of the coin from the jokey version in Far From Home. Yes, and because Far From Home, you know, you get like the pep rally, like the the basketball game, and the the band suddenly appears or whatever. Yes, um, like and it's and it's kind of funny. This one is really upsetting. Really upsetting. And you have to realize, it would be upsetting. Mm-hmm. Like... Especially in a hospital. Yes. Although, I think... I think the Russos have stated, like, anybody in, like, a plane uh, wakes up safe in a field. That, that like, Stark took that into account when he undid the blip. No. Banner undid the blip. Oh, that's right. Banner. Banner did it. When Banner undid the blip. Because Stark... Stark just got rid of, of Thanos. Yes. But yeah. but so so Banner like made sure that people were at least on the ground. Yes. Good stuff. It's so uh, also like, also Monica's already a captain. Yes. So not uh, for those of you who are unaware, Monica Rambeau is one of the many captains Marvel of the Marvel universe. Yes. Um although she uh she's she probably I don't know if she wins the award for most codename changes 
without changing continuity, but she's had a bunch of them. Yeah, she really has. Because Captain Marvel, and then one of the one of the Kree characters showed up using the name, so she changed. Mm-hmm. She started going by Photon, but then there was another character calling himself Photon, so she changed to Pulsar, and I think another character started using Pulsar, and so now she's Spectrum. And, like, at least two of those characters who were using the name she had before was freaking Genesville. Yes, yes. Because he's the one who showed up using the name Captain Marvel. Yep. And, and I think took the name either Photon or Pulsar. One of those, I think, Photon. was also Gen- He took Photon, Photon, yeah. When he was part yeah. of the Thunderbolts. Yeah. Which makes no damn sense. No, not at all. Like, that name always made sense for her because she controlled, like, light waves and, and light yes. energy. And Spectrum makes sense for her because, you know... She controls the, the various, like, spectrum of, of light. Yeah. Although, um, have they done a Squadron Supreme thing with her yet? Because I don't of that? think so. I don't think so. Because there, there is a spectrum in Squadron Supreme, Doctor right? Spectrum, yeah. Right, right. Who's their Green Lantern, uh, basically. Right. Um, Pulsar she had to drop because one of the Shi'ar guard goes by that name. Okay. He's off-planet. Yeah. Yeah. Does, I don't know. Uh, okay. Whatever. So, that's interesting. But yeah, um... But yeah, it's a really fascinating episode. Um, really fascinating. I, just think about the blip. Like, so many marriages would get messed up by the blip. Oh, yeah. Like, like people like people who had moved on. Yeah. People who had remarried. Yeah. Like... Because enough... Because we're talking years. Yes. Five years. Yeah. Some people don't wait five months. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am really curious to see where they go from here now that... Rambo is on the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it, it remains to be seen how much she remembers of being in the show. Yes, because she had been transformed into a character in the show for part of it. So it's not clear how much of her was aware of that. Well, she says at the end, it's all Wanda. It's all Wanda. But is that because of that last scene where she snapped out of it and saw like because near the end she starts bringing up things that are from the real world, like. As the as the fiction is crumbling, bits of her personality start to break through. Because we're a lot of people have been operating under the assumption, at least Sword has, that somebody is doing this to Wanda, like right. and Vision. But now we, she's like saying, no, it's it's all Wanda. Now it remains to be seen whether something is influencing Wanda. Yes, uh, because some people have speculated, um, maybe Mephisto, maybe. Someone connected to Strucker. Yes, that would make sense. Like there, there have been a few different suggestions of of ways that it ways that you could avoid it being entirely Wanda's fault because that seems like it would maybe not be great. No, it would no, no, not good. But we're we're still going back to the John Byrne effect here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just uh, so uh, a couple. Uh, well, one thing in particular. Well, I'll, I'll say this first. Monica Rambeau should be a breakout star of the MCU. Yes. Like, I want more of her. I want her as a superhero. Uh, she, This actress will be appearing as Monica in Captain Marvel 2, so that's something to look forward to. Nice. I, I imagine that S.W.O.R.D. will be, like, the... Rather than S.H.I.E.L.D., S.W.O.R.D. would be the agency that Carol would lia- be a liaison with on Earth. Yes. Um. So that's, that's something to look forward to. I personally think that Darcy and Jimmy should be the Scully and Mulder of the MCU. 
They're so good together. They really are. And, like, I mean, it practically writes itself. I mean, uh, just, so, Jimmy, so you're saying that this is some kind of nexus? But of what? And Darcy says, of realities, I guess? And then men, and then men think shambles in. Like, it, it, it writes itself. <laughs> All right. We've done enough talking about WandaVision. We should probably take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Dracula Lives number seven right after these messages. Don't talk, just listen. Caddy. Why don't you drive a nice, clean city car? Trunk space. Trunk space. Collects Aztec art. Do you know what this cup was used for? Drink the sacrificed victim's blood. And does his best work after dark. I know you're out there. Where are you? Now he's tracking a bloodthirsty killer. I'd be careful if I were you. He's very disappointed. Who's terrified a modern city. This next set is dedicated to you, Jean-Pierre. The Nightcrawler's waiting for you. Into believing in vampires. All veils and mystics. Why are they staring at my neck? Streets are blue. Suspect is armed and dangerous. So silken moments. We have a lot to catch up on. Goes on forever. But Nick's main suspect is not a superstition. Can't deny what you are. He's a deadly reality. He's murdering his way of calling me out, Jack. That Nick knows all too well. McQuaid was my master. The vampire that brought me over. It's like a brotherhood. It's taken 200 years. But this cop's past is about to catch up with him. I'm repaying my debt. I caught a killer tonight. And you couldn't have caught him without the vampire. Who cares how I did it? You do. I don't think you have the strength to change. You really think you can take me as a mortal? Go to hell. Not before you. Nick Knight. Our first book for today is a Marvel magazine. It's Dracula Lives number 7. Cover date is July 1974. The editor-in-chief is Len Wein. Cover artist is Luis Dominguez. The editor is Roy Thomas. 
Our first story in the mag is Here Comes the Death Man, written by Jerry Conway and art and inks by Vincent Alcazar. It's January 12th, 1974. In Washington, D.C., wealthy businessman Richard Thomas Grant is leaving his office with an employee, Dennis Smythe, when he's approached by an apparently homeless man who instantly kills Grant with a laser beam concealed in his cane. Two days later, in Boston, Dracula prepares to feed, when by chance, he sees a newspaper headline reporting Grant's mysterious death. It turns out, Grant was one of Dracula's agents, and so, Dracula decides to hunt down his killer, not out of personal connection to Grant, but rather because of the months of work wasted by his death. Meanwhile, the mysterious killer, now calling himself Mortis, also assassinates amateur archer Dr. Thomas Lewis for reasons yet to be explained. Dracula arrives in Washington that night and begins questioning Dennis Smythe about the circumstances of Grant's death. Their conversation is interrupted by a news report announcing that in addition to the murder of Richard Grant, two more murders have occurred, Dr. Thomas Lewis, which we just saw, and also Josiah Huntingcutt. Dracula realizes that both men were associates of Grant, so he orders Smythe to help him investigate Grant's office. That same night, at the Gregorian Museum, Professor Clinton Hall is approached by the killer, who shows him a magnificent gemstone only for it to explode, instantly killing the professor. At roughly the same time, Dracula and Smythe have determined that Professor Clinton Hall, along with a woman named Mildred Williamson, were also associates of Grant, all working on something called the Broadway Project. They find out about the professor's death and immediately go to Mildred Williamson's address. Dracula arrives first, and finds Mildred, who reveals that her father's business partners squandered her father's fortune on a secret laser project, and the venture's failure led to his death, leaving her with nothing. Grant and his associates tried to bring her in on the project next, but instead, she killed them all for revenge. Before Williamson can elaborate further, Dracula feeds on her until she dies, and leaves the body with the now quite mad Dennis Smythe. Alright, I'll say I like the artwork. Yes, absolutely. The artwork is nice. It's a waste of a Washington, D.C. setting. Yes. I like the Dr. Fibes-ish setup. Yes. Like the the various murders that seem unrelated, but you slowly pull the pieces together and it's revenge. In fact, it is almost exactly Dr. Fibes. Yes. In fact, Fibes was 71, Fibes Rises Again was 72. Those would have both been on the minds of people working in horror. Yes, which, I mean, we, we I think we've been on the record on the show before about how much we love Dr. Fives, so... Very good stuff, yeah. Um, my problem with this story, and I'm even on board with this whole, like, like, making Dracula Sherlock his way through a story. Oh, yeah. Like, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. Like, like, Dracula as procedural. <laughs> I don't know that I'd want, like, an ongoing of it, but it's a cool story idea. Dracula, he's a cop. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that basically Forever Night? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but my problem with it is... So, it's totally in character for Dracula to not really care about her motivations and just kill her for revenge once he realizes that she did it. Yes. Because he doesn't care. But, as a reader, 
I would have liked to know how she pulled off all of those murders. Yes, like... Like, she where'd she was, get the laser? She was the mortis person, I, I guess, guess, in makeup. Right, and the homeless person with the laser. And she had an explodey gem. Like, but that's just... Those how, are some very elaborate death traps. How do you make a gem explode? I don't know. Best guess is it was not, it was made of explosive material. Like, it was not a real gem. Okay. But... <sighs> But yeah, like that that's what was missing was you give me all of these elaborate setups that seem unrelated in motive or or style, but then you don't give me an explanation of how they were accomplished. Mm. And that's what felt missing to me. Yeah. But at the same time, I laughed a little bit at the fact that Dracula just utterly did not care. It's like, "Oh, you killed you killed my person, my guy, then I'm going to kill you." It also makes <laughs> no sense why the the, the helper dude goes crazy. Yeah, no, not really. That that felt very, like, 50s horror comic anthology. Yes. Oh, you're confronted with the fact that vampires are real. Okay, you're going crazy now. And yeah. presumably you're going to be blamed for this murder. Right, right. Uh, but I, 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 I can't help but chuckle a little bit at how Williamson is literally, like, mid-confession explaining what happened and her motivations. And Dracula's just like, well, that's enough of that. Yes. <laughs> I, like, I, 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 it's I get, amusing more than it is satisfying. I get this kind of supposed to subvert the genre. Because mm-hmm. they spent all this time placing Dracula into this whodunit kind of genre. And he's like, no, I don't care. Yeah. But, I mean, play with it a little bit more. Right, right. And it's one of those things where if it had been a full-length comic and not part of an anthology, like, we might have gotten a little more. We'll talk about that, because there's a story we'll talk about later, which I feel shouldn't have been a full issue and should have been just a Dracula story, but we'll get there. Right, right. But, so, yeah, but like you said, I think the best part of this issue is the art. Oh, yeah. That's actually the best part of the next story we're talking about as well. It really is. Uh, so maybe we should move on and get to that. Our next story is a prose piece, Blood Moon. Written by Thompson O'Rourke, with illustrations by artist Ernie Chua. <sighs> Marie DeVoe gradually awakens to the sensation of being carried across the desert on a moonlit night. She then remembers the events of last issue, working as a nurse alongside her fiancé, Dr. James Lloyd Barrett, and then encountering the strange man in black with hypnotic eyes. The mysterious man suddenly stops and apologizes for having struck her, and suggests that they will be together for a very long time. Back at the hospital, Dr. Barrett and Father Virgilius Flotsky grapple with the knowledge that Marie has been abducted by a vampire that the priest knows as Vlad, and they try to anticipate where he will take her next. While Vlad can't go to the local cemetery because it's consecrated ground, Barrett remembers there's a Native American burial ground just outside town. They prepare to depart, but Flotsky muses to himself they may already be too late to save Marie. Meanwhile, Vlad is about to bite Marie when she sprays her emergency pepper spray in his eyes and runs away. The vampire begins his search, calling on the coyotes of the desert to help him. Speeding into the desert in their Land Rover, Father Flotsky says they need weapons to defeat the vampire. Garlic, crosses, stakes, and so on. Dr. Barrett pulls out a massive 357 Colt Python revolver, just what any sane man would carry. They arrive at their destination, and in a bizarre moment, 
Barrett blames Flotsky for his own fear, wishing he could draw his pistol and kill the priest where he stood. Vlad catches up to Marie, and once again prepares to bite her, when Father Flotsky arrives with a silver crucifix and a cluster of garlic. The vampire calls on his coyotes to attack. Barrett fires on the animals, but the priest is already severely injured. The doctor then fires at Vlad point-blank, to no effect. Just then, Vlad notices the first rays of dawn, and flees for the safety of darkness. Barrett puts Marie and the injured Flotsky in the Land Rover, and goes in search of the vampire. Not to kill it, but so that it can make him famous. He drags the coffin back to the Land Rover, only to collide with a Mercury, driven by locals who had appeared sporadically throughout the story, but always in non-sequitur sequences that had nothing to do with the plot. Troopers arrive on the scene, revealing that the locals and the Mercury were fine, and Marie and Flotsky will probably be okay as well. But Dr. Barrett was killed instantly. As for the mysterious body in the coffin, well, it's getting late, so the mortician will pick it up first thing in the morning. Jesus Christ, this story was bad. Like, it is so bad. Like, for some reason, Barrett just becomes this gun-toting lunatic halfway through the story. The first part of this was our least favorite part of the last issue, and this is probably my least favorite part of this issue. Very much so. It's just, it's it's bad. It's, um, for one thing, I kept waiting for the reveal that Vlad was actually Dracula. Yes. I'm like, because it's clear from the artwork it is Dracula. Yes. And that he's going by Vlad, even. Like, suggests that it's Dracula under an assumed name. Yes. But it never comes up. Yes. And apparently this priest, who we've never seen before in Tomb of Dracula, has been tracking him this whole time. Right. And, and I guess, so... Maybe he's one of Harker's American agents. But maybe. Although, have it, have they stated that he's strictly American? No. And I'm sorry, well, I cannot he, get over how he knew, he, stupid. He knew Marie as a child. He knew Marie as a child. So that means that he's probably based in America. Like, I, I can't get over how stupid Barrett acts in this. Oh, 100%. Well, he goes from, I don't believe in vampires at all, but I want to save Marie, to... I am totally into vampires being a thing, and doing a scientific study of one will make me famous. Yes. Also, like, like up, like in in like an instant, he makes that flip. Also, I'm going to kill this priest. Like that's such a weird moment. Well, so first off, that the doctor is carrying a 357 Colt Python, just like carrying around and, the hospital, and apparent and apparently not that like he grabbed it because they were going after a kidnapper. But that he just always has it on him is yes. the implication. The implication is he carries it underneath his lab coat. And that's a large gun. Like, a three fifty seven Colt Python, that's like, we're talking like Dirty Harry firepower there, you know? I mean, there are plenty of people out there who have Dirty Harry wet dreams that, you know, they're... The, 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 because they carry a gun on them, they're going to be the hero. Right. More right. often than not, they are, in fact, the villain. Right. But... Um, but yeah, Barrett is just awful in this. And I was, like, I, I guess I'm supposed to be glad he died at the end, but I was glad he died at the end. Yes, but the, the ending is so stupid. Well, and so also, can we just talk about how, like, the story keeps coming back to those guys in the Mercury, even though they have no bearing on the plot, just so they don't come out of nowhere at the end? Yes. It's just, mmm. The whole thing, like... The- Thank goodness for Ernie Chua. Yes. Chua's artwork here is great. He is drawing a better story than the prose is telling. This is true. This is very true. Just 
the artwork, his artwork here is great. And again, we talked about how the last story felt like this was a comic story that wasn't completed in time, so he made it a text piece. Mm-hmm. That is obviously not the case here. Yeah. No, actually, we actually have an explanation on why this exists in the letters page. Oh? Um, uh, someone asks something about, uh, like, the, the non-comics content in the magazines. Okay. And the response is that Marvel no- editorial noticed that readers were not enjoying the, the reprints of old comics, like the 50s reprints. Mm-hmm. So they pivoted to more articles and prose fiction. But more 50s reprints means less things we have to talk about in the show. <laughs> a, 50s, a 50s reprint is not going to canonically feature Marvel's Dracula. We can skip it. <laughs> so so that's why we're getting stuff like this, is it's in place of reprints. Yeah, but if it almost feels like they're punishing the reader for not enjoying the 1950s reprints. Oh, it, you wouldn't take our reprints? Well, let's give you some real shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's rough. So um, mm. And again, I we didn't like the first part, so I guess we shouldn't be surprised that we didn't like the second part. But the second part is even rougher than it the is, first part. It is. It's far more contrived, to be sure. Like, I really believe that the first part was meant to be a comic story. They couldn't mm-hmm. get it done in time, so they used the artwork they had prepared for the comic story, cut it up, Put it, had the writer do a text piece, and now they're like, okay, the first one's a text piece, so you have to do the second one's a text piece. Okay, uh, but I, I'll just throw some shit into it, and boom, we're done. And I think that's part of the problem, is this this second part feels way more padded out. Yes. Like, the first one, love it or hate it, like, it had a clear, like, narrative progression. Yes, and they took time to set mood, and... Mm-hmm. And give us, like background about characters and stuff like that. Yes. And this one it's just like, and now the doctor's gonna go crazy. Yeah. Also can, and and it's the 70s but I'm still gonna comment on this. It, it's more than a little upsetting that like we can't go to the cemetery because that's consecrated ground. But the Native American burial ground, that's not holy. Oh, and yet again we see the casual depiction of rape or casual yeah. mentioning of rape. Yeah. It's yeah, just, it's it's rough. It is extremely rough. Yeah, um, and also the the fun mention that uh, that the vampire is racist. I missed that part. Oh, um, he wouldn't go to the mortuary and use a coffin there because the owner of the mortuary is a Turkish. Turk. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Named Mustafa. <laughs> oh, this whole story is just a mess. It really it's is. It's rough. It's rough. Should we move on? Please. Yeah, okay. Um, our next uh, next and final story in this magazine is... Or no, sorry, not our final. No, Just let's our say. next. Right, right, right. Our next story in this magazine is Assault of the She-Pirate, written by Mike Friedrich with art by George Evans. In his castle, Dracula once again mourns for his dead wife Maria and gazes wistfully at his most prized possession, a golden locket containing her portrait. I am once again coming to you to mourn the wife of my... (laughs) 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 Sorry, I couldn't help myself. (laughs) My Dracula's a mittens. Okay, (laughs) carry on. 
In addition to its sentimental value, the locket is unlike any other. Made from African gold and diamonds, Chinese jade, and crafted by the finest jewelers in Europe. While many have coveted the piece, Dracula has held on to it for the memory of Maria, and it stays by his bedside, even in undeath. The next morning, while Dracula sleeps, a band of pirates arrives in Transylvania, led by Helen Deville. She intends to raid Dracula's castle and steal the locket, unaware of Dracula's emotional attachment to it. She fights her way to Dracula's chamber without much difficulty, and having obtained their treasure, the pirates depart, except for one drunkard who gets left behind. That night, Dracula immediately discovers that the locket is missing, along with other valuables. He finds the drunken sailor and learns what's happened. Dracula feeds on him and takes flight after DeVille's ship. DeVille dares Dracula to come and take the pendant from her, before running away. Dracula fights his way through the pirates and enters the captain's quarters. DeVille tries to seduce the vampire, but he is both unfazed and uninterested. Furious at the rejection, DeVille orders her remaining men to attack with wooden stakes. Dracula hypnotizes all of the pirates at once, paralyzing them. He then reveals to the crew that Helen DeVille herself had used dark magic to control them, and that she is in fact an ancient witch. DeVille begs Dracula for mercy, but he takes his locket and leaves her to be killed by the pirates. I mean, this was good until it turns out she's a witch. Right. There's there's not much to the story, but no. I was digging the swashbuckling vibe until, like, the last two pages. Yes. Until it's revealed that she's actually a witch. Yeah. Yeah. That just seems a, a bit like a cop-out. A little bit. A little bit. I, I, I wondered if something was up because the way she manipulates the crew through, like, lust and affection felt very, like, succubus or something. Mm-hmm. Which might have been a better twist, rather than witch, that she was literally demonic. That like, would have been cool, actually. Like, with a name like DeVille. Like, if she was, like, a demon pirate. Elena DeVille. Elena <laughs> DeVille. If she doesn't steal your locket, then no one else will. <laughs> but yeah, so the, the twist didn't land the way I think it was meant to. No. Actually, a fight with Dracula and a she-demon would have actually been a way cooler fight. Yes, like, yes. Just like, boom, wings spread, holy crap. Yep, yep. Um, but, so we have, it, we're not given a year for this story. We, mm. we usually get a, a time period to sort of set the chronology, but all we, but, but it, it looks, you know, probably like... 1700s? Somewhere, I was thinking 16 or 1700s. Yeah. Like, like, that would be the right era for what we think of as, like, pirate stories. Yes, and, you know, we have to... You can roughly tell the era we're looking at by judging the length of Dracula's hair. The the hair, and also, um, he is in his, like, um, bare-chested V-neck tunic phase. Yes, the Fabio phase. Yeah, like, like he, he is full-on romance hero Dracula at this point. <laughs> Oh. Which I, I I can dig it. Like, that's pretty cool. Like, it fits the, the pirate vibe. Oh, Romance Hero Dracula is still a popular vibe. So... Yes. Yes. Um, so, and again, the art is very good in this. Um, the uh, the George... I'm not all that familiar with George Evans, but he, he does a good job of, like, capturing this kind of period action adventure. 
there are a few times where his artwork's a bit rough. Like on page 32, the crewman yelling vampire. Yeah, so the again, the ending, I think, is the weakest part. Yes. And that's sort of where it gets rough. Like, that page in particular just overall looks very sketchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's also that's also part of why the twist with the witch doesn't fully land is part of it is the, the artwork for the witch is just not particularly interesting. I can understand that. Yeah. She, she's, she's a cartoon crone. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I do love the, the image of, uh, the bat flying away wearing the locket. <laughs> yes. It almost looks like armor. Yep. It's so big on him. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this one, it's forgettable, but the premise is fun enough that even with a flat ending, it works. Yes. And I I am always here for, like, adventure stories with women as pirate captains. Oh, yeah. That's always a fun, a fun thing. A fun and historically accurate thing. Yes. Pirate queen. We, st- we, we stand pirate queens. Yep. Yep. And then that takes us to the last story here. Yeah. Now we are at the last story of the magazine... And that is the continuation of Roy Thomas and Dick Giordano's adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. This is Chapter 3, The Female of the Species. Jonathan Harker is effectively a prisoner in Dracula's castle, comforted only by the small cross given to him by an old woman during his journey. The Count has demanded that Harker write letters to his employer and loved ones, explaining that he will stay with Dracula for at least a month. With that... Dracula takes his leave for the night, but cautions Harker not to fall asleep in any other room of the castle. Restless, Harker opens the window of his bedroom to get fresh air, and is shocked to see Dracula crawling along the castle wall like a lizard. Once the Count was gone, Harker decided to explore the castle. He eventually finds an unlocked door he had not noticed before. He enters the ancient room, and briefly writes in his journal, but soon drifts off to sleep. He awakens to find that three women have joined him in the chamber. Harker feels an immediate, almost involuntary desire as they approach and begin caressing and kissing him. Just as he feels their teeth upon his neck, Dracula appears and throws the women aside, insisting that Harker belongs to him alone, but promising that once Harker has served his purpose, the women may have their way with him. As consolation, Dracula tosses to the women a bag, apparently containing a still-struggling child. Harker awakens in his own bed, realizing that Dracula must have carried him. He goes back down the stairs to the room that he found, but now it's locked from the inside. Sometime later, on May 8th, Dracula comes to Harker and demands that he write three more letters. One, that he is soon to depart from the castle. One, that he has left the castle. And one, that he has arrived at the village of Bistritz all to be post-dated May 19th, May 23rd, and May 29th, respectively. In an instant, Harker realizes Dracula's intention to kill him. As he writes the letters, Harker hears a band of Romani people outside, and he tries to get them to take a message in shorthand to his fiancée Mina. Later, however, Dracula comes to Harker with the secret message, revealing that this group of Romani answer to him. He destroys the coded letter, and soon after, Harker falls into a deep sleep, as though drugged. As he drifts into unconsciousness, Harker wonders if Dracula might kill him in his sleep, or perhaps send the women after him while he is in this helpless condition. 
I mean, it's excellent. Uh, yes. Um, as we have said with the last two issues, this faithful adaptation of the Bram Stoker novel by Roy Thomas and Dick Giordano is the standout highlight best thing about this magazine. Oh, definitely. It's, it's really... The artwork is fantastic. Right. The language is almost entirely Stoker's, but it is it is deceptively hard to take dense prose from a novel and condense it to speech bubbles and captions. And Roy Thomas is just amazing at it here. Yes. Just, like, the scene, the mood and the communication here, like... The part where the Brides of Dracula feed on the child, mm-hmm. they barely show us anything. But you know exactly what's up. Yes, and it's it looks so good. Yeah. Uh, and I love that they included the bit of Dracula crawling along the walls of the castle. That's something that a lot of early adaptations in film and television left out, just because presumably it was hard to do. Yes. Um, but it's just not something you see often. Uh, you see in Scars of Dracula... The, the Hammer film, you see Dracula climb up a wall, not down it. Um, but but you very rarely see him climb down the wall like that. Uh, the the Coppola movie does it, and one or two others do yes, it. Yes, quite but very famously. Few. Yeah. yeah. It's just <clears throat> spider Drac, spider Drac. <laughs> but yeah, it's good. It's And, and they're, they're very good at finding beginnings and endings, like where to start and end a segment of the novel. Um, because it's not one-to-one with chapters from the book. Mm-hmm. But it but it's narratively very satisfying. Extremely so. And you get you now you've had the advantage of reading this as a single volume. The yes, it's been a while, form. but I have. Yeah. And I get the feeling that this would work very well as a completed volume. It does. It's it, it cuts together exactly, you know, like like where one chapter ends, the next one picks up. Now, I think it went unfinished for a while. So in the, the the finished volume, there is new material at the end because they didn't get to finish the story. Yes. And so, even here, there's recap material of the previous issue. Right. The the opening bits that I summarized were also in the, the previous issue. Okay. Yeah. So if... But there's a clear delineation there. So it's not too hard to imagine where that's cut together. I'd, have, I'd love to take a look at your copy again sometime. Yeah. Yeah. But uh. it's... Not surprising, just like last time, this is the highlight of the issue. Absolutely. Um, and we've mostly skipped over the not, the nonfiction prose material. It's all movie reviews, which are fine, um, mostly focused on Hammer stuff. Um, one thing I will just briefly point out for my own amusement is in the final uh, nonfiction section, the, uh, the Coffin Chronicles by Carla Joseph, um, who I believe would go on to be Carla Conway. Okay. Um, I believe she married Jerry Conway for at least a little while. Okay. Um, one of the reviews there is of The Exorcist, which uh, I don't know if I've said it on this podcast, but is one of my favorite films of all time. And uh, they call it out for not being faithful to the book, which I think is odd. Is it? Okay, I've not read the book, so... It, it's fairly faithful. I mean, they, there's some subplots that are cut out, but that's about it. Okay. Interesting. So, anyway, um, but but yeah, but as far as the the Dracula material, we've, that's everything that that's in the book is what we've summarized, and it's funny how 
the best stuff is sort of at the back end of the magazine. Like the pirate story and and the Stoker adaptation are really probably the best parts of the book. Yes. I mean, the mystery starts so fun. It just kind of lets potential. you it it lets you down in in the in the conclusion. And and I it actually it it and the pirate story have the same problem of yes. the last couple pages just don't stick the landing. Nope. And I wonder if both of them had more pages rather than getting that asinine prose piece. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the thing is cuz that how long was that prose piece? Too long. But uh four pages, five pages, something like that. Um scrolling takes forever uh so so you've got a two-page spread with the artwork and then so you've got like seven pages jesus counting counting the the two-page spread of art um like you take those seven pages you give four of them to the first story and three of them to the pirate story and you've got satisfying endings for both yeah you know and this is us playing Monday morning editor here. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, no no disrespect at all to Lynn Ween or Roy Thomas. <laughs> yeah, Monday morning editor, 50 years after the fact. Right, right. And with very modern sensibilities of what a satisfying story would be. True. But yeah, but that's, you know, it's not the worst magazine we've covered. Like I say, I, I very much like the Stoker adaptation, as always. And there was enough enjoyment in the pirate story and the mystery story that I could see buying this as a magazine and being mostly satisfied. Yeah. Even if I was like thoroughly turned off by the stupid prose piece. Oh man. I, part of our problem is, and I think you'll agree here. We read a lot of these. Yeah. Yeah. We read a lot of these magazine stories. So we come at it from a different perspective where we can kind of like pick it apart. Mm-hmm. Cause this could and have been- that's the, and that's the thing. Chances are, people were not buying every single issue of Dracula Lives and Tales of the Zombie and Vampire Tales and whichever one Frankenstein's in. They're all blurred together. Like, you know, like like most people at the time were probably not reading all of the magazines at once. Mm-hmm. But we are. <laughs> and it's hard. It, 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 you start to see the, the sort of patterns of problems across the whole line. Yeah, it's just... Especially the use of tropes and the jumping on whatever's popular mm-hmm. in media at the time. Mm-hmm. It's 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 interesting. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but I think that probably wraps up the magazine, Indeed. which there was a lot of it. So maybe we should take a break and then we can come back with our other Dracula story for the episode, Tomb of Dracula number twenty-two. Right after this message. If you take two old punk rockers who are past their prime, put them in front of a movie screen and give them a podcast, what do you get? Cinema punks. Cinepunks. It's the mixtape of movies. Friday on the CBS Lake movie... Anyone can spot a vampire from 30 yards. Tell me, did Mr. Mitchell have a couple puncture marks on his throat? But Kolchak's got to get the one disguised as a pretty girl. 
And she's got a way of knocking a guy off his feet if he's not careful, which can be a real pain in the neck. The two victims that were killed in this apartment were killed for food by a vampire. A real one. Darren McGavin crosses one as the Night Stalker. Welcome back, Tomb Believers, to our last comic this episode, Tomb of Dracula, number 22, In Death Do We Join. Cover down, this one is July 1974. Writer is Marv Wolfman. Artist is Gene Colan. Inker is Tom Palmer. Letter is John Costanza. Colorist is Linda Lesman. Editor is Roy Thomas. In a Russian village, a father comes in from the fields after hearing a scream from the room of his widowed adult daughter. He finds a man in mid-transformation into mist looming over her bedside, the daughter's late husband. The young undead man transforms into a bat and flees, and we learn from flashback that the young woman's marriage to Gorna had been an abusive and unhappy one, with her husband flying into homicidal jealous rages if she even so much as talked to a man. The woman does not mourn when her husband becomes mysteriously ill and dies in short order, only finding out at the funeral from the rites performed for the undead that her husband had died from the bite of the vampire. When the corpse groom visits again, he is met with ambush by the villagers who set the vampire on fire with a flaming stake. The young undead stalker transforms into a bat and flies away, still in flames. Meanwhile, Dracula has also come to the town but when he meets Gorna, the young vampire refuses to submit to the Lord of Vampires. When he meet again after Gorna's encounter with the villagers, the young vampire is almost a charred skeleton. With the villagers, including Petra, looking on, the two vampires fight in flames. Dracula, of course, wins, and Gorna is reduced to ash. So, a couple things right off the bat. Um, the cover... Lord of the Living Lightning? Really? That's kind of a misdirect, isn't it? I didn't even notice that when I looked at the cover. Because it seems more to do with flames. Right. And also, he's a vampire. <laughs> like, the cover does not indicate that it's vampire versus vampire. It makes it seem like Dracula's fighting some sort of, like, lightning monster. Lightning Scarecrow actually is what it looks like. Yes, yes. Uh, which takes me to my second point, which is Gorna's final form, especially as illustrated on the cover, is a waste of a cool visual design. Yes. He's so much cooler in the book than on the cover. He is. He is. But but it, it's a waste of a cool design because this is a one-off villain that I imagine we'll never see again. Yes. I mean, there's all kinds of cool design elements in the story, like the skull mask that the villagers wear when yep. confronting the vampires. Which are never really explained. It's just, right. hey, it seems like they have this whole set of rituals they've built up around, like, like keeping away vampires and stuff. Because the same is like when with the funeral scene in the flashback, like they wear the the costumes then too. Yes, I mean I like it. Yeah, it's fun. Also, uh, Gorna in his like vampire form, especially on the very first page. Uh, looks like Jonathan Frid as Barnabas Collins in Dark Shadows. <laughs> okay. He looks a bit like a John Byrne piece there. A little bit, yeah. He's got Byrne face. But something about the nose and the cheekbones, like, he looks like Barnabas Collins. Okay. You've watched way more Dark Shadows than I have, so I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I guess I could see it. Like a younger version. Yeah, yeah. 
I think maybe they're going more for a um, Anthony Perkins thing, actually. I could see that, yeah. Um, yeah, I, there's some interesting ideas here. I like I like the flaming wooden stake. Like, yes. that's a cool twist. Although, um, why didn't... Why did the stake not just kill him right then and there? Why did it right. not well, I guess they him? Did, maybe they didn't, like, pierce his heart. Like, the flames caught, but it didn't fully, like, penetrate. Yeah, I guess. Well, and also, if we're following Dracula rules, once the stake comes back out, you come back to life. Yes. Which, I guess he pulls the stake off... He pulls himself off the stake? Something like that. They're not super clear. Well, because we see him get stabbed... And then the next page, he's turning into a bat and flying away. So I imagined that the villager stabbed him with it, he caught fire, and the villager pulled it back out. Interesting. Which seems stupid, but... It is stupid. I mean, on the like, villager's Like part. the way you would stab someone with a sword. Yes. Although, you know, maybe the... Vi- Although apparently the, vi- the villagers know a lot about vampire lore. They do. Because they do. they've got procedures in place. Right. Um, I also have to wonder... Again, it's weird, but, like, it's another of these stories where a mystery is set up and then not resolved at the end. So, like, why does this vampire not, like, bow to Dracula's authority? Why is Dracula not able to control him? Is just sort of left hanging there. Yeah. We also, I didn't talk about it in the summary, but we also get the obligatory four panels of what's going on with Taj and... Sorry, what's going on with um, Quincy Harker and... Frank Drake, and Rachel Van Helsing. Yep, and I counted. It's exactly four panels. Yeah. Um, And it's basically, the point of those four panels is, just in case you did not read Giant Size Chillers, here's what we're up to. Yes. Which brings me to a point I kind of referenced earlier in the episode. This feels like a Dracula Lives story. Right. Like, the, the absence of our main cast, except for Dracula. Also, that... Dracula's the hero of the story. Yes. Like, it's not really a story about Dracula. It's about this young girl and her trauma and this awful relationship. Like, that's what the story is about. But Dracula's the hero of the story. He is. I don't... Uh, it's a weird structure. It really is. And, and, and again, that him being the hero of the story feels more like something from Dracula Lives. Yeah. Because that's... In my ideal sort of differentiation between the books, when both books are doing what they do best, Tomb of Dracula is a book about the vampire hunters hunting Dracula. That's what it does best. Dracula Lives, at its best, is stories from throughout time from Dracula's point of view. Yeah. And this, being a story more or less from Dracula's point of view, feels like it ought to be in Dracula Lives. Although... And we've gotten other Tomb of, Tomb of Dracula stories like that, but they're never my favorite. When you say this, it makes me wonder, since we got the actor from that one Dracula story showing up in World of My Night, are we going to get the sea, the, the sea Witch, Pirate Queen, whatever, showing up in, like, Frankenstein or something? I wouldn't be mad about it. No, like, it'd just be... It'd be weird. These minor Dracula's characters showing up in the other horror books. Yeah. Kind of like the idea of, like, Dracula lives. Is Dracula going around, like, ruining all of these people and creatures' lives? And then because their lives have been ruined, they show up in other books? Yes. He... Oh, man. He, he's... 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 He's Coulsoning the, um... 
The, the, the Marvel monsters. <laughs> is He's that going how around. We get Le- is that how we get Legion of Monsters? Maybe. Like, <laughs> you, you know the song, We Didn't Start a Fire. Dracula's like, no, I started the fire. Way, way back <laughs> in 1467. I lit match. <laughs> oh, fire's been a theme on this one. <laughs> it has. It has. Um, also, I just I want to point out if I can find the page. Um, this is yeah. Um, um, I don't have page numbers. Um, it's when Gorna attacks the girl for the last time. Like right, it's the same page where he gets the fiery stake through the chest. Yeah. Um, Top left corner, first panel. He fangs her once more. That is A plus caption writing right there. <laughs> Write a stern letter to Marfolfman. <laughs> so the the panel is is a close up of the vampire biting her neck, and the caption is as he fangs her once more. He fangs her once more. All over. A plus caption. Uh, beautiful. Good. Good job, Wolfman. Dear Mr. Wolfman, you don't know us, but you were you wrote you wrote a Dracula to a Dracula story. And we story. have questions. <laughs> we take issue with your phrasing. You're now they know the word fang. <laughs> Stuff. But Verb. Yeah, you make you know, it's like the verbing of the word fang. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. As as an English teacher, I I have questions. <laughs> and as a social studies I go, ooh, pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say I really like the two-page spread of Dracula surrounded by flames with Gorna in full like melty face mode, like pointing at him. It's the start of their fight at the end, I think. Oh yeah, the double-page spread. Yeah, that's good stuff. It it is it's real nice. Like like that image right there of Gorna, like that look that is a cool enough image. That it ought to be like an ongoing monster villain in something. Yes. Like he looks like he ought to be a Ghost Rider villain. I think he does. I think some somebody who looks a lot like this does become a Ghost Rider villain later. Probably because he's got like it's not quite a skull face, but it's like skeletal. But he's still got the vampire fangs. It's a really cool look. It is almost like in in the nineties the the Ghost Rider villain Vengeance, who's basically evil Ghost Rider, but the skull has fangs. Okay. Yeah, I remember, I remember what you talking about. Purple Skull Guy. Purple Skull Guy. But the, the main, other than color, the main differentiation was, like, his skull had fangs. Okay. Did it also have a mohawk? Like, it had sometimes. spikes? I, I, think, I think sometimes, yeah. Like, they're, yeah, spiky mohawk thing. Yeah. The 90s have a lot to answer for. <laughs> oh, we'll get there someday. Someday! We will demand, we will demand answers. <laughs> Howard Mackey, your time <laughs> has come. <laughs> But, speaking of times coming, I guess that means that that is it for this episode of Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. That's uh, right. If you want to reach out to us, you can do so. Our email address is tombofideas at gmail.com. You can reach us on the Twitter. Our account hasn't been banned. At Tomb of Ideas. Our Facebook is facebook.com slash Tomb of Ideas. And Trey, why don't you tell them how, why and how we are proud members of the Cinepunks Podcasting Network. That's right. All of our back catalog is available on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. 
If you go there, you'll find all kinds of great prose articles, interviews, and podcasts like ours, but also the Cinepunks podcast, Black Sun Dispatches, Cinema Smorgasbord, Horror Business, all kinds of great stuff. So check out not just our back catalog, but all the other great shows and articles that are available as well. And that's Cinepunks.com. That is, of course, assuming that Liam retracts his egregious opinion about Critters versus Gremlins. Right? It, right? It, y'all listened to, I think it was the latest horror business. Is that right? Uh, maybe. it was. I saw it on Twitter, definitely. Listen to the January 25th episode of Horror Business, because Liam O'Donnell, fearless leader of Cinepunks... For now, before the, the impeachment trial. ...is of the opinion that Critters 2 is the superior sequel to Gremlins 2. And I just cannot stand for that. No. For one thing, does Critters 2 have a giant song and dance number of Gremlins singing New York, New York? It most certainly does not. No, it doesn't. Um, Nor does it have um, Trekkie favorite actor Bob Picardo. No, just no, Liam. No. So, everyone, listen to Horror Business, episode 94, from January 25th, and let Liam know how you feel. That he's wrong. (laughs) anyway i think that does it for this episode next time we will be doing another combination of single issue and magazine this time looking at the frankenstein monster number 11 and tales of the zombie number six featuring the zombie and brother voodoo so until next time bye-bye i mean gribblers 2 has freaking john glover in it i just i i don't understand you have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior! Ha 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 ha!